Chip. Thank you for having me, be, having me here today. It's a privilege to be here and a delight to get to open up God's Word with you. If uh, you want to open up a Bible and read along, we'll be in Jonah, last verse of chapter 1, and then the entirety of chapter 2. So read along with me uh, as we enter uh, into God's Word. <clears throat> and the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice, for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight. Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit. O Lord, my God, when my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord, and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Let's pray. Lord, we all come to you today in, in different states of being. Many of us are tired. Many of us feel like we are, we are at the end of our rope. Maybe we feel a little bit like we are drowning, as Jonah describes here in, in his story. We pray that, that you would meet us here where we are, that through our worship and through the revitalizing power of your word, through the work of your spirit in your sons and your daughters, that you would enliven us, that you would give us the hope and the faith and the grace that we need to continue trusting you, to grow in our dependence upon you. For, Lord, that is what we need more than anything. We need you, and we ask that you would give us exactly what we need today through your word. We ask these things in the power of your spirit and in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen. We see a lot of signs around our world that say things like, do not enter, right? You're not allowed here. And we're a, we are well aware of these signs and others like them that are littered throughout our society. And we understand these things from a very young age, and we abide by them because we recognize that there are things in this world that are not safe, right? Maybe as a child, you discovered something very scary, and that is that when you get in your bed at night and all the lights get turned off, that there are monsters under there. And that, that's terrifying, and you realize that you do not go under your bed at night as a kid. You, you cry out to your parents because you need them to come in and save you. If you were to happen to wander into Narnia through a magical wardrobe, 
you might be approached by someone who calls herself the White Witch of Narnia, and you would know that you should not talk to this witch. You should not talk to this woman because she is evil, and she will try to deceive you. We, we see these things in our world. We see them in stories, and the Israelites were no different. You see, the Israelites were not a seafaring people. They did not like the ocean. They preferred, like myself, to keep their feet on solid ground. To the Hebrews, the sea was considered a place that was chaotic. It was a place of peril. It was something that should be avoided at all costs. And if they needed to confirm this belief and offer a word of warning to doubters, then they needed to look no further than Jonah and the distress that he experiences in the sea in this psalm. We see Jonah's distress. We see that Jonah is helpless. In verse 3, Jonah writes, The flood surrounded me. All your waves and billows passed over me. In verse 5, he says, Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. The image that's being evoked there is, is Jonah literally landing on the bottom of the ocean and the weeds beginning to enfold themselves around him like a tomb. Because not only is Jonah helpless, Jonah is near death. In verse 5, he says, The waters closed in over me to take my life. In verse 6, he says, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. And in verse 2, he calls this land Sheol, which is the place of the dead. But not only is Jonah helpless, not only is Jonah near death, Jonah is also separated from God. In verse 4, he says, I am driven away from your sight. But what's interesting about Jonah is that it is in his distress that Jonah finally gets the thing that he's been searching for. Because if you're familiar with the story of Jonah, you know that in the first chapter of Jonah, God gives Jonah a call. He says, Jonah, I want you to go to the Ninevites. I want you to preach to the Ninevites. And Jonah responds by saying, I don't think so. And so Jonah flees from God because he does not want to preach to the Ninevites. And in chapters 1 and 2, we see Jonah's movement away from God depicted in three statements where he goes farther and farther down. He's a, his attempt to escape God begins in, verse, or in chapter 1, verse 3, when he goes down to Joppa. Then in verse one, or chapter 1, verse 5, he goes down to the bottom of a ship. And then here in chapter 2, he literally hits the bottom of the sea. It's as if Jonah was testing how far he could go in order to try to elude God. So why was Jonah running, right? He, he's running because he does not like this God who has called him. He did not like a God who would send him to preach to sinful, evil people like the Ninevites. You see, Jonah was perfectly fine being a prophet to his own people. He was fine being a prophet to Israel, but he did not want to go and risk non-Israelites getting saved because Jonah doesn't want that to happen. He wants Israel to be alone, the sacred, special people of God, and he wants Nineveh to have none of that grace stuff. And so Jonah runs from God. He did not like the God who would do this. He thought that he knew better than God. And so Jonah, in his attempt to run, decides that life would be better if he and God were not in close proximity to one another. And so Jonah did not want the God of Israel. Jonah wanted a God that he could escape. And we may laugh at Jonah, right, at the, the kind of absurdity of, of trying to escape God. 
but I think we do the same thing. I think if we're honest with ourselves, we also will do what Jonah does here by selectively taking aspects of God that we want to be true and turning those, those things into the God that we ultimately end up worshiping. Right? One way we may do this is, is by saying, you know, I don't like a God who really wants me to, to give him my all. Right? I want a God who, who I can kind of barter with who I can relate to transactionally, who I can say, hey, if I come to church on Sundays and I give you my time, then during the week, you can give me the things that I want. So we can relate to each other this way. You give me the things I want, I, get, I give you the things you want, and we're all happy, right? We just go to church on Sundays. We don't have to be honest with people. We don't have to be vulnerable with people. We don't have to let people into the mess that we are or let ourselves into the mess that other people are, we can just go about our business. Or maybe we think to ourselves, I really like a God who would allow me to put my family first and foremost above everything else. And so we create a God who who agrees with this, who agrees with this idea of putting family first. A God who, who says, you know what, I can't provide you with the love that you long for. I can't provide you with the salvation that you need. But you know who can? Your family your friends, maybe your grades, maybe your vocation. And so we create this God who, who tells us that these are the things that we can pursue for salvation and for hope and for life, right? My identity is not as a son or daughter of God, as a brother or sister with Jesus. My identity is as a mom or a dad, or a husband, or a wife, or a boyfriend, or a girlfriend, or a lawyer, or a doctor. That's where my hope and my identity will be found. But we see here in in Jonah chapter 2, we see what happens when Jonah gets the God that he wants. Because that's that's exactly what we see. Jonah tastes what it is like to get a God that he can escape. He experiences what it's like to have a God who is incapable of saving him at his time of greatest need because Jonah has gotten so far away from him that he's, he's impossible to save. And what's interesting is, is it reminds me of Genesis 3 with the fruit that Adam and Eve eat. You see, this fruit that is offered to Adam and Eve by the serpent, it seems so delicious. It seems so delightful and beautiful, and it promises to remedy Adam and Eve's problems by giving them independence from God, by giving them the knowledge of good and evil. But what they discover when they bite into the fruit is that rather than finding delight and joy, they find death and despair. It is bitter and it is terrible, and Jonah discovers that a God that he can escape ends up being no God whatsoever. This God, who he can escape, abandons him to death and suffering and destruction. But Jonah, as he sinks toward the bottom of the sea, half-conscious, only vaguely aware of the weeds enfolding themselves around him, around his weary, soon-to-be corpse, like a ready-made underwater tomb, as Jonah's body strains against the pressure of the ocean around him as he sinks deeper and deeper, as his lungs writhe within him, yearning for oxygen. It's in this moment that Jonah's foolishness becomes clear to him, and he calls out to the God that he needs in the first half of verse 2. Jonah says, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. And what's interesting is you may notice that the word Lord 
in the text here, in the passage, is all caps. And what that word Lord represents is that Jonah's not calling out generically to just some god. Jonah is calling out to the covenant god of Israel. That's what that word represents, is the covenant name that God gave his people. Jonah is calling out to Yahweh, the one who brought his people out of Egypt when they were enslaved and brought them into the promised land against a people that they never thought that they could defeat. Because what we see is that when life gets real, when suffering and distress engulf us, what we need is a God who is absolutely inescapable and all-powerful. See, when we abandon the true God of the Bible, and we try to relate to God transactionally, as if we can give him what we think he wants and then he is supposed to give us what we want, we discover very quickly that reality strikes and this God that we think we want is incapable of doing anything because he's not real. Or we may discover that this God who allows us to put family first is really no God at all when our family disappoints us when it falls apart due to sin or sickness, when we are left helpless and we appeal to this God and we say, hey, I thought that family was going to bring me salvation. And, and this God that we've created says, yeah, man, I thought so too. I really thought that family was, was going to save you. I'm really sorry that, that that's not the case. I wish there was something I could do about that, but, but I'm incapable of doing that because I'm simply a creation of your own doing who is here to affirm the things that you want to believe. And so we see how, how weak and vain and empty these things are. Because when these things happen, when reality hits us with a swift right hook, we see how vain our created gods are, how foolish we are to put our hopes in them. And Jonah recognizes that as well. In verse 8, he says, Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. Now, the word steadfast love in the Old Testament is a very important word. The Hebrew word for for this is chesed, and it refers to God's covenant-keeping, everlasting, perfect, impossible-to-break love for his people. I think one of the most beautiful pictures of God's covenant-making love is in Genesis, when God makes a covenant with Abraham. And covenants were a common part of ancient Near Eastern culture. A lot of times when people wanted to make agreements, when they wanted to make contracts with each other, what they would do is they would make a covenant. And one of the ways that they would enact this covenant is they would take animals, they would slaughter them, they would cut these animals in half, and they would place them on either side. And they would create a path down these halves of animals that the two people would walk. And they would walk down this path between the animals. And what they're communicating as they walk down this path is, if I break my side of our agreement, may I become as these animals are. So it's basically saying, I would rather die than break my end of the agreement. And if I do break it, you may put me to death. That's how sure I am. That's how committed I am to this agreement. And so God says to Abraham, hey, Abraham, let's make a covenant that I'm, that I'm going to be faithful to you and that you're going to be faithful to me. And so Abraham does the work. He sets the animals down in the path. And right before Abraham and God are about to walk down this path together, God puts Abraham to sleep. And he puts him under a tree. And Abraham, as he, is, he's, as he is asleep, he sees a vision of God himself walking down this path on his own. And what this communicates to Abraham and to us is that God is saying, I know that you cannot keep up your end of the covenant. You will break it. 
you will sin, and therefore I will walk down this myself, and I will keep both ends of the covenant to ensure that I can be faithful to you, to ensure that you will be saved in spite of your disobedience, in spite of your sin. And we see this reach its fruition in Jesus, who literally dies and pays the penalty of breaking the covenant with God on our behalf, so that we can be brought into God's family as sons and daughters. And that is the kind of love that Jonah gets a taste of here in Jonah chapter 2. See, when we put our hopes in the true God, the God who gives his people steadfast love, we cannot escape it, even as we try to run from it, like Jonah does here. Because when, when difficulty happens, when reality hits us with that swift right hook, what we need is a God who will not abandon us. What we need is a God who can save us. And Jonah discovers that this God, this God that he has discovered, the God of Israel, who is the exact opposite of what Jonah wants, is exactly the God that he needs. Because Jonah needs a God who is able to save powerfully. And Jonah recognizes that this God who is able to save powerfully can only do so because he is in control of everything. Jonah recognizes that God is the author of both his distress and his deliverance. In verse 3, he's referring to God and he says, You, God, cast me into the deep. You cast me into the ocean. But then in verse 6, he says, You, God, brought my life up from the pit. Which gets at the fact that Jonah realizes that God is in control of everything, and he needs that to be true if he's going to have any hope of salvation. But before we get too caught up in Jonah's salvation, I think it's important to to step back and ask this question of, what what does it actually look like for Jonah to to be delivered by God? Because this this beautiful poem that Jonah's written can make it seem like Jonah has just won the lottery. It can make it seem like he just got, you know, drafted number one overall in whatever your favorite sport is. But where is he really? What what does the passage tell us about when Jonah wrote this psalm? What it tells us is that Jonah wrote this psalm while he was still in the belly of the fish. And think about that, okay? What would that be like to be inside of a fish? Well, one, it would be really smelly. It would not smell good at all. Two, it would be completely dark, right? This is not a fish that comes with with electricity. So Jonah probably can't even see his hand in front of his face. It's it's damp, it's gross, it's uncomfortable. He probably sets his hand down and touches something weird, and he doesn't even want to know what it is. I mean, the place that Jonah is in when he's writing this psalm is actually still pretty terrible. So why is Jonah so happy? What has changed in Jonah's life? Because let's be honest, Jonah, in this fish, he's still pretty helpless. He cannot get out of this fish himself. He cannot manufacture salvation from the fish. He is still near death, right? This isn't the kind of fish that comes with a butler or a breakfast buffet. If Jonah does not get out of this fish soon, he can die from starvation, from dehydration. But one thing has changed in Jonah's life. And that one thing is that Jonah now has the God that he needs, Jonah celebrates because he realizes that if this God is so powerful that he can save him through something as preposterous as being eaten by a fish, then this God can surely get him out of this fish as well because this God has orchestrated everything. And so Jonah, in verse 9, rededicates himself to God. He recognizes, I have been faithless. I need to repent of my sin and put my trust in God. 
He says, I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And then in verse 10, Jonah finally returns to dry land. He is vomited onto the land by the fish. In a mere 10 verses, Jonah goes from the brink of death at the bottom of the ocean to the breath of life on the shore of the land. And I think this this leads us to consider another aspect of the God who we need. And this is the fact that this God who we need is pretty insistent upon saving us and working in our lives in slow, progressive, hard, maybe painful ways. Here we see an important biblical principle playing out in Jonah's life, and it is that God's work of salvation in the lives of his people is rarely, if ever, instantaneous. In fact, it tends to feel slow. It feels lengthy and painful and progressive. There are peaks, there are valleys, but there never seems to be an end. And if we're honest with ourselves, this is also not what we would prefer if we could have our way. Because we would prefer to have a God who saves us instantaneously, who, who gives us the things that we need and then goes away, right? Because we can tolerate a God who saves us powerfully when we are helpless, but then we kind of want to go about our business when things feel normal. But God is, he's not about that. I'm sorry to tell you the truth. And this is especially true for us because we, we live in a, a time when we are very accustomed to instant gratification, right? I have a remote at my house now where I can hold a button down, I can tell my remote what I want to watch, and it will turn on my TV, it will open the proper application, it will go to the show, and it will begin playing the show on the most recent episode that I watched, right? That's amazing. That's a wonderful thing. But it also makes my heart more and more resistant to God's progressive, slow work that he tends to do in the lives of his people. And we need to recognize that, that we don't like that, and we need, we need to work on, on repenting of that, because we don't like having to be patient. And we definitely don't like the pain that so often accompanies the way that God is so insistent upon changing us. Yet this is how God almost always seems to work. I mean, look at Jonah. Let's look at Jonah. He's running from God. Then he's thrown into the sea. Then he's swallowed by a fish. Then he's imprisoned in the fish for three days. And then he's, dro- he's vomited up on dry land. And what happens to Jonah spiritually? I want to ask you this question. How, how much spiritual growth occurs in the heart of Jonah over the course of all these things. You see, Jonah still, he's still not happy about this whole Nineveh thing. He's still not on board with it. But Jonah moves from running away from God to now begrudgingly obeying God, right? He's kind of like, all right, God, like, I recognize I need you, like, fine, but I'm still not on board with the whole Nineveh thing. I still don't like it, but I'll do it anyway. And what, it's, it's amazing that God would go to so much work and do so many things for what seems like a very small change in Jonah's spiritual life, in his heart. But I think we, we also feel the pain of God's work in our own lives, right? We feel the pain of the times when God allows us to experience brokenness in the world. Maybe when God allows us to get the thing that we're longing for, and then we realize that, that thing that we've always wanted is just as empty as we were afraid it might be. We know what it's like to see the consequences of our sin as we hurt other people. We know what it is like to to feel the pain of losing things and people that we love. We know what it is like to undergo suffering as we search for a job fruitlessly, as we see our budget stretched to its limits and have no idea how we're going to make things work 
when we try to love difficult people or when we have our sin and selfishness exposed by the people that we love day in and day out. Yet it's in these seasons of suffering, in these difficult circumstances, that something else is happening. And what is happening is that God is at work. God is at work in changing his people in small ways, and he is committed to doing it no matter how many miraculous or unbelievable actions it takes for him to do it. Because he's so committed to his people. He's so committed to you. And so we learn slowly but surely to repent of our sin and to hate it. We learn of God's faithfulness in times of trouble, of his unexpected provision through unexpected people. We learn how much we need others, how much we need brothers and sisters and friends in Christ We learn how to love people who are different than us, even though we don't fully understand them. And God himself, this might be the most amazing thing of all, is that God himself is not unacquainted with this reality. Because what we are told in the New Testament is that Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, enters into all of these things himself for us. And he can sympathize with us. Jesus was frustrated, and he was disappointed with the self-centeredness of his disciples. Have you ever been frustrated with someone who was self-centered? Maybe I'm the only one. Jesus was surprised and shocked by the hard hearts of those who he taught and preached to. Jesus wept at the death of his friend Lazarus, and he wept at the unrepentance of the people of Jerusalem. Jesus was doubtful and fearful as he prayed to his father in Gethsemane. Jesus knows the slow, painful, progressive way that God works in the lives of his people. And so as we experience these things, as we wrestle with these things, we have a God and Savior who knows them intimately and has entered into every single one of those, yet never once sinned, yet never once broke God's law, yet never once stopped trusting his Father. You see, Jesus is fully able to sympathize with our weakness because he experienced it himself. And what caused Jesus to endure? Why was Jesus willing to do this? I think that's a fair question. Jesus does this because he knows his Father. And because Jesus knows his Father, he trusts his Father. When we have a God who is sovereign over our distress and our deliverance, we can trust that he will always snatch salvation out of the clutches of despair. See, when Jonah comes to terms with this God who is over everything, he recognizes that this is what he needs, and it compels him to sing songs of praise in the darkness of the fish. Because Jesus trusted God, he was willingly, he willingly submitted himself to death on a cross because he trusted that his father would not abandon him to the grave. There's a pastor who died recently. His name's Eugene Peterson. And his son talks about a a conversation he had with his dad not long before he died. And what his dad told him was that he really only ever preached one sermon. He only ever preached one sermon. Over and over again, this is what he said. And he, he summarized this sermon to his son, and he said, this is what I preached every single week. God loves you. He's on your side He's coming after you, and he's relentless. The God who loves you 
the God who allowed his son to die on your behalf, he is relentless and he is coming after you. And he will save you because salvation is not a work that you do. It is a work that he does. It's not something that you and I manufacture for ourselves. It's not something that we earn. It does not belong to us. But as Jonah tells us here, salvation belongs to the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that that you would give us the faith to believe that, to believe that you are the author of salvation and that you will work salvation out in our lives despite how we may feel, despite how our circumstances may look. Give us the faith to trust you, to grow in dependence upon you, to see our independence from you as, as evil, as wrong, and to turn away from that by the power of your Spirit. Lord, we pray that that you would make us more like Jesus and that we would know the truth, that when you see your children, you see us in Jesus' perfection and you delight in us as your children. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.